Hello, and welcome to the Slow Style Home Podcast. If you don't want a cookie-cutter, generic home, and instead you want a beautiful, meaningful home that's layered with personality, then you are going to be so inspired by the conversations we have on this show. We talk about why the environments we create matter and how to set up our rooms to evoke specific feelings and experiences that are right for you wherever you are in your life right now. I'm Zandra, your host and creator of the Slow Style Home Framework that teaches you how to make really thoughtful and informed decisions about your home rather than chasing current trends that may not last or staying stuck with rooms you hate, feeling overwhelmed with too many choices. Right now, when you join our monthly membership, the Slow Style Society, you'll get a personalized deep dive into your vision of what a dream home looks and feels like. And together, we'll come up with a plan on how to achieve that. If that sounds pretty awesome to you, go to slowstylehome.com and click on Join the Society for all of the details. I'll tell you a little bit more about it later on. Right now, let's just jump into today's episode. Hey there, and welcome to the Style Matters Podcast, brought to you by Little Yellow Couch. I'm Zandra, your host, and I am so excited to share with you a new episode about creating a beautiful, meaningful home right here every Monday. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a free live workshop I'm hosting called Three Secrets to Beautifully Designed Homes and why you can have one right now without moving or spending a lot of money or even hiring a designer. Now, I've been getting some questions about the workshop, so I thought it might be helpful if I answer them right here. And if you are listening to this episode later in the year and the workshops are over, you can just skip over this part. But back to the questions. First, there are four dates and times to choose from. When you go to the registration page, you'll see a down arrow next to the first date. Just click on the down arrow to see the other options. Second, I haven't done a live workshop before, so I'm actually not sure how long it'll go. But I imagine the teaching part that I'm doing will be about 20 minutes, and then there's a live Q&A at the end, so I will stay on for just as long as it takes to get you through all of your questions. Which brings me to the next question I've been getting, which is, yes, the workshop is live, and yes, it's online, but there seems to be some confusion about how you access it. It's not on Facebook, so you won't be logging in there. Instead, once you register, you'll receive an email with a link that you click at the time of your scheduled session, and it'll take you to the workshop. Third question, it's a video and slide deck presentation, so you'll be able to see and hear me, but then you'll also be able to type in any questions you have so that I can answer you right then and there. So how do you register? Well, if you already get the Little Yellow Couch newsletter, you'll be getting all of the details there. But if you don't get the newsletter, well, first of all, you can, of course, sign up for it at any time. But you can also just go to littleyellowcouch.com and click on Workshops at the top of the homepage. Oh, one other question I've had. When you register for the workshop, it will ask you for your name and email. But the system is smart enough to know that if you're already signed up for the newsletter, you will not be 
put on the mailing list twice. It's just going to make a note that you've registered for the workshop as well. So no worries there. No duplicate emails coming from Little Yellow Couch. And one last thing I want you to know is that even if you cannot make any of the times that the workshop is live, go ahead and sign up anyway, because that way, at least you will still get the limited time replay version. So if you sign up and you know you can't make it, or you sign up and you intend to make it, but then something comes up and you can't, you will automatically get the replay version in your email. So go ahead and sign up no matter what. That said, it is to your advantage to show up live because then you'll also get access to a special bonus that I'm only sharing with people who make it live. Plus, showing up live and asking me any questions that you have about your home is the next best thing to us sitting down in real life and having coffee together. And so I would love to connect with you in this way. Okay, okay, I've gone on and on. Let me introduce you to today's guest. Today, I am talking with Danielle postal Vinay, author of Home Sweet Maison, The French Art of Making a Home, which gives you a pretty good clue as to what we'll be talking about. There's something about the French lifestyle that we Americans are enamored with. There are a gazillion cookbooks and travel guides and movies to devour about French life and culture, but there are also books about how French women stay thin and books about quintessentially French decor. We are, as I've said, obsessed. But I have to say, this one feels different to me, this book that Danielle has written. What Danielle has done is intertwine aspects of a lifestyle that is particular to the French culture with how people in France use their homes. And since I talk all the time about creating a home that gives something back to you and a home that supports you in your daily life, I found her book to be extremely useful in this way. I always feel that when doing the hundreds of routine things to improve my home, like ironing a really wrinkled tablecloth because even for my low standards, it just won't cut it, or uh, vacuuming a rug or leaving the kitchen sink clean at the end of the night, If I separate the action from the reason why I'm doing it, it feels like a dreaded chore. But when I simply ask the question, why am I ironing or vacuuming or even lighting a candle, and my reason has something to do with experiencing simple pleasures for myself and my guests, I tend to relax and enjoy the necessity of slowing down for just a minute to care for my home. In Danielle's book, Home Sweet Maison, she encourages us to embrace the idea that our homes are our sanctuaries and also a visual representation of who we are, which makes them very special places. I am so excited to share this conversation with you today. But before we get started, here's a word from our sponsor. Okay, so you guys know that my favorite places to shop are where I can find one-of-a-kind things like antique stores and thrift shops, but hey, there are still tons of things that we buy that come from the big boxes or from online, and of course, we want to stretch those dollars as far as they can go. Enter this cool new app I found called ShopTagger. So when you're shopping on one of your favorite websites online, but you don't want to pay the full price, you just save the item to ShopTagger and it notifies you when the price drops. 
Or if you need it right away and you're at the checkout page, it'll pop up with a coupon code that you may not have even known about. So cool. Now, just so you know, Shop Tagger is spelled shop, S-H-O-P, Tagger, T-A-G-R. And to get it for free, click the link in today's show notes page at littleyellowcouch.com. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me on the Little Yellow Couch. I am thrilled to have you here today. Well, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to just start off by saying that I have fallen in love with your very dear friend, Jacqueline Menon, who I realize have, has, has passed away because you dedicated the book to her. That must have been very difficult for you. It is because I'm, you know, I miss her so much. Um, for the, you know, obviously those people who haven't been, who haven't read the book, um, Jacqueline was a, a kind of mentor to me. I met her when I was in high school and I wandered into this romantic kind of smoky, beautiful antique <laughs> shop on a, on the main street of my Midwestern hometown and um, was just sort of taken aback by how different the atmosphere was. And um, it was one of those situations where I kind of sat in a chair next to her and, you know, emotionally speaking, never got up. Um, right. she, she really taught me every, she was French and had spent a large part of her life creating, um, the environments that reflected her upbringing and, and her heritage. And so, you know, she really taught me a lot about what it meant to live in a French home, even though. I wasn't in France. <laughs> right. And and you, eventually you were invited into her home. And we'll talk about that later, what it means to be invited into a French person's home. But you say, and this is when I started getting goosebumps, was right in the introduction to the book. <laughs> Before I even get to chapter one, you talk about Jacqueline's home. You say, her house, it seemed to me, was not just a place where she ate and slept, but a vessel for her vision of life. And I thought, wow, that is what I want for all of our homes to be, a vision for our lives. I love it. We'll be back after a quick break. I assume you're here because you want a one-of-a-kind, personality-filled home, right? Well, in order to have that, you need to define and develop your signature style. When you do that, you're going to understand how to mix what you already have with new things you find, focusing on who you are and what you love, putting it all together in a cohesive way. So what's stopping you? Well, let me know if this sounds about right. Not enough time, not enough money, and a lack of creativity or design knowledge, which makes you feel overwhelmed and insecure about pulling the trigger and changing things up. This is why I created the Slow Style Society, to help you take action on making your dream home a reality. It's part social club for people who like to just geek out on design and part hands-on learning experience where you get better and better at making decor decisions for each room in your home. And for the next few weeks, I'm offering all new members an additional one-on-one style session with yours truly. So I'll take you through the lessons so you know exactly what to focus on inside the Slow Style Framework in what order, and you'll have a personalized support system from me to get you there. 
Go to slowstylehome.com and click on Join the Society so we can get started right away. Let's not wait for that imaginary perfect time to create your beautiful, meaningful home. Again, go to slowstylehome.com and click on Join the Society. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, and I really felt that way walking into also her antique shop too, right? I mean, that was a little Mm. bit different because that was a public space, but um, everything that she touched, she infused with her sort of vision of her style, of her heritage and how she wanted to live. That was really the one of the primary um, elements about everything she did is bringing that to other people and for herself. Mm. Tell us in the very beginning of the book, the most enchanting story of your first visit to her house and where you sat and how it was presented and all of that. Sure. So as you mentioned, um, you know, she invited me to her home and um, for, I'll just answer that question now that what you mentioned earlier is, you know, getting invited to a French person's house is a little bit of, um, of a test in some ways. And it's once, once you're invited, it's almost like you've been given a stamp of approval. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Um, And it took her a while, many months to invite me over, even though I had been going to her shop, you know, regularly. But so I go in and the first thing I notice is uh, she has this beautiful, what they call in France, the entree, the entrance. Mm -hmm. And the lighting is kind of perfect. There's a certain smell, um, a fragrance. Um, and she leads me in um, and we sit down by the fireplace. It, I think it was in April. And we sat down and she had a ritual that she performed every spring when the first asparagus came to the farmer's market. <laughs> and she would have this huge platter, um, beautiful porcelain platter full of asparagus and then little pots of aioli mayonnaise mm. um, and lemon wedges. And we would sit down, she had lit a fire and we sat down together and ate asparagus with our fingers. It was like <laughs> her favorite thing to do. And she would often be barefoot. You know, the couple of times I did that with her over the years, she would be barefoot and like in her most comfortable clothes. And it was like right. pure pleasure. Um, oh, so but, that was the first the, time. It was like the table... It sounded like she moved it. Oh, yes. So she moved. Yeah. There was a little, you know, just a little, um, it wasn't actually a dining table. It was more like a, I want to say like a side table, but it was round and almost like a cafe table. Yes. And she pulled it over and set it up, you know, but, you know, with very beautiful dishes and, you know, the whole thing. Um, But right next to the fire so that we could, because it was still a little bit chilly. Right. It wasn't, mm, yeah. uh, it wasn't fully spring yet, but there was asparagus. So, um, and for me who had grown up in a very American environment where, you know, the way that we consume food and the way that we have meals is nothing um, like that. The rituals aren't the same. Right. Um, so it was really, especially, I think I was 17 or 16 at the time. It was for me very eye opening about um, a different, have, you know, what different, people in different parts of the world do um, to make uh, food and experiences meaningful. Yes. I remember being in college and going to friends' homes uh, and being sort of taken aback. It was the first time I realized that not everyone's family ran the same way. I I don't know why I didn't notice this in, in high school or younger, maybe because we all lived in the same town that it didn't feel that different but once you start meeting people even from different parts of this country it 
you, you realize, wow, there, not everything has to be the way I grew up. Sometimes you want it to be, and sometimes you do want to make the change. Right, right. Um, well, I think it also hit me at an age where I was looking for who I was. Yes. Um, and meeting Jacqueline really did alter that. Um, I ended up spending a lot of time in France. For example, I ended up moving to France and um, I ended up marrying a French man and really falling in love with his French family. And the book uh, explores what that means. And, you know, in some ways, my introduction to French lifestyle um, came, you know, from Jacqueline, but it right. really became um, crystallized. And I really understood the inner workings of it when I was with my husband's family, yeah. um, because that was a real working French family who had, you know, a, 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 an apartment in Paris and then a, a house in Brittany. And so I was able to go to these different spaces and sort of study them like a right. fly on the wall, which was really fascinating for me being a Francophile. Absolutely. I, I just want to say one more thing about this scene that you paint on your first visit to her home and you say this i'm not i'm this was not my conclusion you, you make this clear throughout the book that the wonderful thing about your experience with the french is that there's this juxtaposition between ritual and respect for history and mixed with this this sort of carefree attitude where rules are broken and and i i feel like that asparagus dinner First of all, she moved the table to the fireplace. She didn't, there was no rule that you had to eat in the dining room for that particular meal. She was fine with carrying this little beautiful table over to the, over to the fireplace. And then second, she set the table beautifully with all of her beautiful dishware, but then you ate the meal with your fingers. Right. And she was and barefoot. She's barefoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With the dog sort of curling around her feet. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that that's exactly it. Um, this, I think that having those kind of not strict, but um, customary rituals and traditions and table manners, for example, there's a, a lot of coded mm -hmm. table manners in France. Mm. Um, having all of that and knowing it, um, it gives people in France a kind of pleasure to throw it aside and be like, I don't have to do that if I don't I want to. Um, and I see that in my husband too, right? Like, you know, he, there's a real pleasure, daily pleasure of doing the little, you know, sort of little transgressions <laughs> <laughs> against his culture. Um, uh, but, you know, but then again, if people, you know, if we don't observe them at all, then of course it's really dislocating for, for him and, and he doesn't like that. But um, well, it's kind of like, it's a good lesson. To, it's sort of like saying, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater right. because you maintain the rituals most of the time, but every once in a while you break the rules. And I think that keeps the rituals from feeling overbearing and old fashioned and out of touch with reality. And I feel like in this country, we do tend to eschew standards permanently almost you know once we realize that oh this is too old-fashioned or this is out of date as opposed to trying to kind of keep them alive but in a way that feels 
uh, reasonable and, and fresh. I agree. I also think that, you know, I, I have a sort of personal philosophy about this, that, you know, happiness and um, successful eating, you know, for example, where you're not eating too much or unhealthy food mm -hmm. um, has a lot to do with those rituals mm. um, and finding a balance. And, you know, once you throw away the ritual of just, for example, sitting down at the kitchen or at the dining room table, yeah. Um, and setting the table and everyone eating together. Once you throw that away and, you know, a couple of people are sitting in the living room watching television and eating fried chicken and someone else is making a sandwich and someone else is upstairs <laughs> eating, yeah. you know, macaroni and cheese or something, whatever. Um, once you start doing that regularly, you just lose, you lose that tradition and you lose that ritual and you, you lose the opportunity for people to come together in that moment and keep that. You know, yes. I, I really think that the ritual of eating together, for example, is one of the one of the strongest rituals the French have and one of the most mm -hmm. codified, but also one of the most important. You tell the story in the book where your husband was so upset when his co-workers, he had, he'd planned this big meal and he was cooking it and everything. And then people just start eating on <laughs> yeah. their own as it's done. And, and, and yeah. to him, it was so horrible because the whole point of the meal I mean, yes, the food is delicious, but it's the point of it is to eat it together. Right. And I, I can appreciate that as someone who cooks, I can appreciate, wait a minute, we all, we, we need to eat this meal together because I just spent hours on it. Exactly. <laughs> and also as a kind of, um, it's almost like a, you know, we've, they were at work, right? They were working on something yeah. and um, it's almost like a moment of congratulations, you know, we've made it and here we are and celebrating something that they've accomplished, not even just the food. So, yeah, I think that he felt very shocked yes, <laughs> and sad. And actually, I think that if I remember correctly, he actually stopped everybody from eating and said, listen, this is what's going to happen and explained, for him. explained the whole thing and they got it. And then everyone sat down together. Oh, I'm glad he did that. It's better to just say it than to harbor a grudge. No, I think he just said it and then they got it and they're like, oh, he's French. <laughs> Let's just appease him for now. Um, I, I did one more little thing on this. I do have to say that my kids are now teenagers and their lives are very busy and I work at all different hours of the day and night as does my husband because we both work from home and so we we are could be very disjointed but we've been having family meals together forever I mean I we just we've just always done it I don't know why we've always done it but we probably because I didn't want to make more than one meal a day. You know, <laughs> that's probably what it was. It was my own lack of interest in making separate meals. But there are definitely days when we can't make that happen. I would say we, we eat together probably four days out of the week. And I, when we don't get to do those four days, if something strange comes up and we maybe only eat once during the, together during that week, I really feel disjointed. I feel so disconnected from them because I don't see them. I really don't see them. They have their own lives. I have my life. The dinner time is the only time where we really do connect. And I'm so grateful that we're, they're used to it. So, you know, it's just, it's just never been a question to them about whether or not we're going to do it. Right. I think that that's so important too, that they just, you know, this is the rituals or the, the customs in your family. 
And, yeah. and, you know, what's interesting to me about France is that those customs and those rituals are pretty uniform across the country. Mm -hmm. um, and you said across classes. Too. Yeah, and across classes, every, you know, every class of, of people in France, and they're not as afraid to talk about class as we are. Okay. Think, you, know, I know, that, you know, it's so funny, I almost hesitated. I know, but and it's true, word. we sort of like have this, you know, idea in the United States that there are no classes, right? Right. Um, right. And, you know, ideally, we wish that there, that there wouldn't be, but there are, and in France, right. there are too. And, but the, what's interesting is that what they call education right and they don't mm -hmm. mean that like what you learn in school but they mean like a sort of cultural education mm. um that is pretty much uniform and it's taught mm. it's taught in schools um it's practiced in homes but also in group settings mm. um and so someone who may be from i don't know a, you know a lower income family in the languedoc region of france where i lived you know would have virtually the same rituals around dinner time as a very wealthy Parisian family living in the seventh arrondissement of Paris. It's mm. and that's great because people can share things together and it's not awkward. You know? yes, people yes. have people have this language that's theirs as a culture. I want to go back to the entrance, l'entrée, I think is how you say it. The entrance of a home, which is the first chapter in your book and then throughout the book you take us in, into each of the different rooms in a house and and how the French use them and decorate them so let's start with the entrance with all of these rooms you you compare the American version and the purpose of the room versus the French version and the French purpose but the entryway is the most striking to me in the in the difference can you tell us what it's for in France, how it's decorated, and also what it does for the relationship between the host and the guest? So I found this fascinating when I, um, you know, first experienced Jacqueline's home. You know, at the time, I don't know if I fully recognized all of the characteristics. I just felt them. Um, mm -hmm. And I've, I've become more analytical about it since I lived in France and saw so many entrances. The entrance is really this place uh, where you welcome someone into your life. And what I've noticed about French entrees is that it's not just a place to hang up your coat and maybe take off your shoes or, you know, just walk in and get out of the cold. It's often decorated with very sort of representative or personal pieces of art or photographs or books or um, objects and items that sort of telegraph what that family is about. Mm, um, so mm -hmm. for example, I'll just give you the example of my husband's family's entree in their apartment in Paris. Sure. You walk in the front door and of course there's a coat rack and all of that. But then the first thing you see is there is um, a kind of bookcase full of little collectible objects around the medical profession. His parents are both in the medical profession mm -hmm. um, and they sort of have made it their life hobby, I guess, to collect antique um, things from medical practices, you know, from like the so 17th cool. century. Yeah, so they have yeah. um, little ceramic artifacts. I don't even know, I can't remember exactly what they have. They have bone, they, they have a skull, I think. Yeah, they, right. they do have that a lot of like sense. very cool things and like medical jars and all of that. But so you see that and you know instantly that 
the, you know, what their profession is or what their interest is. And right. then you look over to the left and then there's this bookcase full of antique medical books, journals, mm. um, and leather bound books that are more or less all about medicine. And so then you see, you know, then you kind of move in and there's some objects about sailing. Um, mm. There's, you know, a, a, a boat, like a replica, like a replica of a boat, um, mm -hmm. like a, like a sailing ship. model, a yeah. model. There we go. A model of a ship in a um, sort of glass dome. And yeah. you see a painting on another wall of a, another ship and you know instantly that they're also interested in sailing, right? So in that way, it's almost this sort of big embrace of the mm. outsider coming in and like an introduction and an intimacy um, mm -hmm. that I don't think that we really have here. Um, I think the way you described your childhood and all of the homes of your childhood friends still is very true about American homes. So just briefly, just re remind us all, Amer all of us in America here, how it's, <laughs> what it's like to walk into an American home. <laughs> well, so, um, you know, just from my childhood and the, and the homes that I grew up seeing, um, the, the entrance area was very functional, right? It was, you, you'd come in and you'd hang up your coat and, um, there's often a rug so you could wipe your feet. Um, and sometimes they would be art, but it didn't tend to have any personal attachment to it. it you mm -hmm. know, it wasn't about something that really represented the family. Often there were, sometimes there were photographs of the family, but they were, I mean, at least in the houses that I saw and still, I still kind of watch out for this when, <laughs> when I'm going to people's houses. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to be photographs of people in frame, you know, family members in frames smiling, um, mm -hmm. you know, not about what you know, sort of their hobbies are or showing who they really are, but almost just the sort of totem of like, we're happy. <laughs> you know, this is us, happy yes. family. Um, here's proof. Here's we're proof. We, we're happy and we're a family. Um, and they, you know, I, I didn't realize it obviously when I was a kid, but as I sort of became more used to this idea of having a really personal entrance mm -hmm. area and one that really um, telegraphed the family's interests and, and who they are, I started to, to miss, I started to find that it was, you know, a little sad mm -hmm. <laughs> to walk into mm -hmm. an entrance that was very functional and, and not personalized. Well, you talk about the American entrance too as being a place to get past you don't linger there. You, you, yeah. you, it's, you're, you're supposed to go straight to the living room or wherever the host is, right? Yep, that's true. Um, and so, therefore, not a lot of attention is paid to the entryway. And I, I, digging even deeper, I think you, you talk about it's, a, it's like an embrace. The, the, the entrance is like an embrace from the host to the guest saying, welcome, this is who I am. And that, I think, is maybe why the French don't invite just anybody over. They, I think so, you know, too. That's why the invitation is so, it, it's so flattering, I guess. I think, it, I think that that's exactly right. When, when I've found from my personal experience, I lived in France for five years and, um, you know, go very regularly with my husband. Um, I found that it's, it's very rare that you get an, an invitation, especially for dinner or something in a French home. But mm -hmm. when you do, it's like all the, you know, all the doors are flung open. Mm -hmm. They're allowing you in and they're going to feel intimate in that way with you. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to feel connected to you forever. 
you know, you can yeah. run into them 10 years later and they'll be like, remember that dinner? And, you know, it's, yeah, it really is important. And I think it, it's an emotional experience. Whereas, um, you know, even, you know, me and, and my sort of American way of thinking is I'll just invite anyone over. Everyone too, come over, right? you know, anytime. Let's just put out some food and hang out. And yeah. um, it, that's really a different, it's very much a personal revelation for a French person to bring you into their house. Let, let's move into to some of the other rooms then. Uh, one of the things that struck me the most about the book is the sense that you gave us about the interconnectedness between home and lifestyle. And and I, I've definitely talked about creating a home that supports how you want to live. I, I mean, that's definitely one of the foundations of my philosophy and, and this, this podcast. But it sounds like for the French, it's it's almost impossible to separate the decor in a room from how the room is used. They're really intertwined. And I, I thought this was especially true in the living and dining rooms, or as you call them, the salon and the sal salle à manger. Oui, salle à manger. Oh my gosh, I, I feel like my French high school teacher is rolling over in her grave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but give us some examples of, if, if you know what I'm referring to in terms of that how they're intertwined, how you use the room and how it's decorated. Okay. So one thing that really struck me when I went to visit French homes was that those rooms were really distinct, right? Yeah, the the right. salle à manger was really the, it, that, that translates to room where you eat. <laughs> and it literally, <laughs> you know, in, in English too, the dining room, right? Like yeah. it, it really still is there the space where you eat. So what's in the salle manger is really a table and sometimes um, a vasilier, they call them, which is just like a, a hutch, you know, or okay. a, a shelving area just for dishes and glassware mm -hmm. um, and napkins and that sort of thing. And it's often separate from the living room or the salon. And the mm -hmm. salon traditionally, um, and in a, you know, 19th century American houses too, where things were much more compartmentalized, right? We didn't have an open floor plan. That room was, it was particularly used for socializing, sitting together, conversation, drinks would be served, maybe some, some little um, snacks or something. And people would use that room. Um, for that purpose. The salon in, in France now is still very much like that. Yes. Um, you will never find a French family eating in their living room ever. So also with television, while there are sometimes televisions in the salon, it's very, very rare um, okay. from what I've seen. Yeah. Um, and if there is a television in the living room, they find a way to kind of hide it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they want to keep the focus on the conversation between people. Right. There's this ritual in France called apro, right? Um, that yes. I write a little bit about. It's yes. um, the six o'clock aperitif. And <laughs> it's something that I love. And it always happens in the salon, unless you have an outdoor terrace or something. And sometimes and if it's nice out, people will go outside. But usually it happens in um, the salon. And what that is, is you invite friends over at six o'clock. Um, you'll have a table set with little snacks and, you know, glasses and a bottle of wine. And it's just understood that you'll sit down in, in the salon, have a glass of wine, talk about the day, talk about politics, talk about whatever, 
And then, you know, at seven o'clock, pretty precisely, or maybe 7.30, everyone gets up and goes home and has dinner. <laughs> right, right, which is also, nobody, nobody overstays their welcome. No, nobody just sits around and, and waits unless the, the host says, oh, would you like to stay later? And sometimes they have it sort of in their back pocket where they have this thing called an apéro dinatoire, which is when they bring out extra stuff and people will, you know, eat um, together. Yeah. But that's pretty rare. And it's usually with good friends or family that that happens. Yes. Um, but so I love so that. how is the salons uh, either decorated or, or set up, I guess, in order to encourage that activity rather than, say, the activity of watching TV? Well, as I said before, it, nothing is arranged around a television, you right. know, um, and the chairs are sort of um, situated in a way that um, it facilitates conversation. Also, something that I noticed is often there will be art um, in the salon that is sort of like conversational, yeah, <laughs> Although, right. you know, so people who haven't been there before, you know, you can talk about it. For example, going back to my parent, my parents-in-law, they have this beautiful um, 19th century painting in their salon of um, these three doctors standing together, right? Huh. And so they, I've heard them tell the story about these doctors and, you know, and it, it's a good conversation piece, right? Like, yeah. and the furniture can be that way. Like there, it's often, or a plant, anything you're right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. around that will break the ice and allow people to speak freely. Well, I love that too, because there's, they're choosing things specifically for their tendency to spark a question from a guest, right? right. I, I, that's how much they value um, conversation. And it's also a way that I feel like an appreciation for art or literature or maybe travel, if maybe they have mementos or something like that around that, that um, their appreciation for those kinds of things for, for living life, for living a happy life are really purposefully brought into this salon, this, this living room. It, it's, it's a wonderful reminder of how these objects can be so important in terms of creating an everyday kind of happiness. I agree. And also, so this is just my little plug, for, you know, my anti-minimalism plug. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in that I think that, you know, minimalism and, you know, throwing everything away, there's a place for like clearing stuff out in your life. But there's also this really wonderful element of keeping certain things mm -hmm. um, and treasuring certain things and, and infusing those objects, whatever they might be, um, with your own um, sentiments and stories, um, yes. having, you know, I'll never, I'll never look at, you know, a living room in the same way after being in France, you know, when people pull out, say, you know, a big, for example, my husband has this huge, huge conch shell that he found in Thailand, Ooh. right? And for the longest time, he had that sort of sitting around in his apartment. And when people would come over, he would pull it out and like say that I found this in the beach or I, you know, yeah. I don't remember exactly where he found it. He bought it in a store in Thailand or whatever. But then it would open up this um, conversation. I could see, you know, people who throw everything away being like, oh, you know, there's no purpose for this. Um, right. You know, what's the purpose of this thing? I'm going to throw it out. But there, there's a lot of um, sort of beauty in useless things. <laughs> I love that. It's also reason enough to have make sure that your treasures are are personal to you. That where there's a story attached to them. It doesn't have to be 
a grand story right. where you know you were in Tahiti necessarily, but but it it can be just oh a friend of mine gave this to me and then you know a little bit more about the friend and as opposed to going to buy a seashell at a big box store that that happens to have you know a thousand of them on display in the summertime right Right. exactly i think it also you know living in france for me and seeing how people collected things um Mm -hmm. or didn't right like what they Mm -hmm. didn't have in their house made me reconsider the idea of like large-scale manufactured objects being in my life Well, moving on to a completely different kind of space in the French home, the boudoir. And it is not what I thought it was. I had thought it was a dressing room, but it had all this sexual overtones to it. And again, very romantic. And and, and it sounds like in your description, it can have both of those elements to them, but um, it's also much more than that. So tell us, tell us about maybe Jacqueline's boudoir. So I think that our conception of the boudoir as sort of this racy, sexy, almost brothel-like space comes from like 19th century novels that are sort of overheated and, you know, know, that something illicit happens in the boudoir. Uh Um, But um, actually, the the idea of a boudoir is of a woman's space, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It was... Mm -hmm. Uh, a kind of dre- you know, dressing room, um, private space where women would put on their makeup and have their jewelry and maybe get dressed together sometimes, right? And right. Um, away from their husbands or the other men in the house or whatever. Um, and so when I went to visit Jacqueline, I knew she would occasionally say something like, oh, I have you know that, but it's up in my boudoir. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, what's that? And But I was not invited in for a very, very long time. Right. And finally, you know, one afternoon, she asked me if I wanted to go have coffee upstairs in her boudoir. And I said, yes, let's yes, go. Yes, I'm dying. To, I've been waiting right, for Right, I've been waiting <laughs> for this. And so she made, of course, this beautiful coffees on the tray Aww. and brought it up and we went upstairs. And she had, you know, a, a sort of really lovely couch um and all of her jewelry she collected jewelry and all of it was sort of hanging or in cases around the room and there were mirrors and lots of books and her she knit so there was her knitting it was just her space right it was just energetically her space private away from her husband the dogs didn't go up there very much like it Uh really was just Um, her private place. And she went there to recharge, to think, to write in her journal, Mm. to listen to music. That was just her her place. Well, what I love about that is it's distinct from the living room, which is also incredibly personal. This is this is sort of even more the inner sanctum. Yeah. I would say that it's, you know, on par with the bedroom, um, which for French people, I have almost never seen it a friend, you know, other than my parents-in-law who, you know, their yeah. room, because I was spending the night there, but right. you know, I've never seen the bedrooms of my French friends. But yeah. <laughs> so the, the boudoir is, is the, on that level of private. Um, it's not a place where you would bring just a casual friend. Right. Right. And so it's, it was quite an honor and it was like time for girl talk. Exactly. You yes. I just, I just love that. I, I love really it too. Do. Well, I I actually do not want to wrap up this conversation at all. I will say to everyone that there's much more to the book that we only touched on a few of the chapters, a few of the rooms. And 
there are more anecdotes and more beautifully told stories that Danielle has written that I, I just, if you want to be inspired and uh, have some fun with one of your spaces and, and you need a little, a little idea to, to spark your creativity, definitely pick up this book. It is so wonderful. But I want to end with um, my, my, Usual question, why does style matter? But specifically, Danielle, what do the French get out of creating a home in these very specific ways? So when when you mentioned earlier Jacqueline's house being a vessel for her vision, I yeah, think well, that, that, that was, those are your words. Oh, that, oh sorry. Yeah, those are my <laughs> words. When you were yeah. quoting my words back to me. Um, yes. I really think that that's a very um, French way of viewing style. Oh. Um, and I think that creating a home with certain rules, I guess you can mm -hmm. call them, and certain practices, it brings um, the tradition of, of French culture into the home, but it also allows French people to have a vessel of their own personal vision within that culture. Mm -hmm. Nobody's home looks generic in France. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's perfectly said. Uh, yeah. And I, I just, this this idea of having a vision for one's life that is represented throughout the home is so appealing to me. I, I often talk about um, creating, using your home as a visual autobiography. But, you know, I sort of struggle with that a little bit because it in some ways can be almost too self-reflective, self almost too self-indulgent. But I think what you're talking about is, yes, there's that inward maybe this my home is all about me 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 but it's also about your your vision your outward vision for life that that therefore feels a little bit more appealing to me than maybe the way i've been describing it so thank you for that oh you're welcome and thank you for having me on the show it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this thanks so much for listening don't forget to subscribe to the little yellow couch newsletter so you can get your hands on my foundational worksheet all about creating your own style manifesto. It'll put you in the right mindset for any project you're about to tackle in your home. You can find it at littleyellowcouch.com. Have a great weekend and I'll be back in your earbuds next Monday. Thanks so much for listening. I know your time is valuable and I really do appreciate you spending it with me. And please, please, please take a minute to leave a review for Slow Style Home wherever you get your podcasts. It honestly does help keep this show on the air and your feedback is highly valuable to me. Have a great day and I'll be back in your earbuds soon. Bye for now.